0: At LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Shelby, Axios, Richard, Hartman, the sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Artemis Killmeister, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, the Navigator, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rumrunner, Madam Anita Sparrow, Hayfe, Bull. Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey, as well as our quartermasters, Heather, Robbie, Howard, Kevin, and Nathan. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Alexandra, Christopher, John, Joshua, Kay, Kimberly, Mark, Nathan, Sol, and Tracy as well as our newest quartermaster, Dermot, and our new Commodores, Andrew, Carcos, Skipper, and Viper. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Shortly before dawn, on Friday, February 16, 1700, a dozen men wearing thick winter coats assembled in Boston's town square. In almost every respect, they resembled a group of sneak thieves, they kept their voices low, their lanterns were shaded, and they did their best to keep out of sight. They weren't thieves, they were the opposite of thieves, really, but their business was to be done in secrecy and in quiet. They were agents of the governor, Lord Bellamont. Two of them were proper constables of Massachusetts, the rest were just men with strong arms that Bellamont kept around for this kind of work. Only the Lord Governor, these twelve men, and Bellamont's personal assistant knew what this business was about. Today, the 16th of February, they were to transport Captain Kidd from the Boston Jail to the Advice, a royal man-of-war under a Captain Wynn that was waiting about five miles off the coast. This is episode 284, A token. Even the wardens at the Old Stone Jail didn't know that the transfer was scheduled for this morning. Nonetheless, they were ready for it. They knew it was coming. And anyway, Captain Kidd was burning a hole in their pockets. They were ready to be rid of him. When the broad, heavy, iron-clad wooden doors of the Boston Jail creaked open and allowed in a gust of frigid air, Every prisoner in the Boston jail, and there were about three dozen at this point, would have awoken. Captain Kidd was in his cell in the middle of the room, where anyone could see him. The twelve men walked over to his cell. Their warden unlocked the door and handed one of the constables the key to Captain Kidd's shackles. Six men crowded into that small cell while the other six waited outside, the constable undid the lock on Kid's ankles, and Kid took this opportunity to grasp at his very last straw. They say that a person falling from a cliff will grasp at anything to try to save themselves, even a tuft of wispy grass that will certainly pull free and will lead to their falling from the cliff and probably dying, but if it's their only chance, they're going to take it. I think about, a in this situation, a cornered animal. When I was a kid, we had this injured fox that took up residence under our porch. Anytime someone came close, it would hiss and snap at them. But it wasn't rabid, it was wounded, and it was terrified. Captain Kidd here, out of options, hissed and bit. He kicked at his captors, he swung his fists, he struggled to break free, but, I mean, it's not like he had any chance of actually getting away here. Still, he had to try. It was his last chance. The six men in his cell, though, made some very persuasive arguments in the form of heavy boots hitting his ribs at high velocity, and eventually Captain Kidd relented. He surrendered. As Richard Zachs says, quote, "Kid was a Scot in the English Empire, a man accused of piracy. He knew his chances. End quote. His ankles were already in fetters, but the men shackled his wrists as well, and probably they also gagged him. If he was allowed to scream for help, it's unlikely anyone would come running in the first place, but just in case they would take every step necessary to remain secret and quiet. Even in that condition, shackled and bound and gagged, it must have been wonderful to finally breathe some fresh air again. Captain Kidd had been locked in a cell in the Boston jail for months now. Despite everything, that cold morning air must have been sweet, Soon enough, though, Captain Kidd was dragged on board a sloop sitting in the harbor. He was chained to the mast and left under guard. Now, I don't have the specifics about exactly how this went down. If it was me leading the operation, I would leave six men with Captain Kidd. The sloop had a crew, obviously, who were supposedly loyal to the governor, but best not to take any chances with William Kidd. Not with a prisoner as valuable, as he was not when his wife, Sarah, had access to God knows how much gold. No six men should be able to keep him safe. The other six would go back to the jail to pick up the remaining three pirates that were scheduled to be transferred to the advice. That's James Kelly, Joseph Braddish, and an 18-year-old one-eyed pirate named T. Witherley. Witherley was one of Joseph Bradish's men, and he was understood to be a particularly dangerous man. Notable for his murderous tendencies, even among this group of cutthroats, that's why he was being taken to the Advice. The trip to the Advice would have been unpleasant. It was cold, it was early, it was dangerous, and it would have taken at least a couple of hours, really unable to move on board the deck. But once they were on board the advice, the men were locked up again. Kidd was separated from the group. He was locked up alone in a well-defended cabin that had a stout door. The other three were chained up together in the gun room. You know how every ship in the Age of Sail had a room that housed all the guns. The small arms, I mean, you know, pistols and muskets, that kind of thing. And the only people that were allowed in that had access to the gun room were the top officers, the captain, his first mate. It was a defense mechanism against mutiny. And as such, the gun room was usually the most secure place on the ship. It was really a perfect place to hold prisoners, minus the guns, of course. So the four prisoners settled in to wait. See, the advice wasn't seaworthy. Remember, they'd had to cut down the yard arms when the ship had run aground to brace her and prop her up. Beyond that, though, the hull had been pretty seriously damaged when that giant ice floe rammed into her. Beyond that, they'd had to dump all the water to lighten the ship, and they did so in the coldest winter in living memory. So there was work to do. It was going to be a cold, difficult couple of weeks before they were ready to sail. In the meantime, though, Bellamont was berating the Council of Massachusetts for their failure to give him the power to execute men for piracy. There were a ton of pirates in the Boston jail, and Lord Bellamont wanted to see them hanged, but the council refused to budge. Now, Lord Bellamont was a, you know, a staunch anti-pirate. It's kind of his platform. So what was he going to do here? Just let these pirates go free? I mean, it's not like the prison system was exactly built to house long-term inmates. Basically, your options for a crime like piracy were hanging or hanging. Unless you were lucky enough to get a pardon, that was your fate. So if Bellamont couldn't hang these men, he was going to make sure someone got the job done. Thanks to the intransigence of the council, that was going to have to take place in London. Over the following couple of weeks, a full 30 other men from the Boston jail were shipped over to the advice. Bellamont even got a couple of freebies in here. Joseph Palmer, who had been one of Captain Kidd's crewmen, surrendered himself at Boston. And I suspect that he expected to get the pardon that everybody was talking about, and that pardon did exist. But Bellamont wasn't going to issue a pardon to any pirates. So, Palmer and his associates were arrested and shipped over to the Advice. Now, it's important to make a distinction here. All of these pirates were New York men. Somehow, they were associated with Benjamin Fletcher and his cabal, now mostly in custody. The New York councilmen were, you know, ready to make amends for all of that business. They would see that every pirate who sullied the name of their good city would swing from the gallows. I'm sure that this eagerness to see justice done had nothing to do with all of the pirate gold lining their pockets. The councilmen from Massachusetts certainly weren't going to stand up for some New Yorkers. However, when it came to a group of merchants from Boston that were accused of trading with the pirates, which was a crime after all, the Massachusetts council were resolute They were not, under any circumstances, going to deport any good, honest, God-fearing Massachusetts Bay men to England. It was, as we said last time, kind of all tied up in that early rumbling of the independent spirit of the people of Boston. It didn't matter how much Lord Bellamont raged and screamed and threatened the council, they refused to budge those merchants were going to stand trial in Massachusetts, and as it happened, all of them got off pretty light. Once all the prisoners were on board the advice, safe and secure, it was time to load up the treasure. Lord Bellomont did not have nearly as much as he had hoped to hand over to the authorities back in England, but he did have a moderately decent stash of Captain Kidd's plunder. He had a bit of silver and gold, but... All the plunder that John Gardner handed over as well. Spices, silks, dyes, that kind of thing. He also had a fairly large stash of precious metals that belonged to Joseph Braddish. It didn't have anything to do with Captain Kidd, so did he have to ship that out too? Here, Bellamont made a fairly large tactical mistake. See, no one in London had forgotten that Lord Bellamont was among that group of powerful Whig aristocrats, maybe the most prominent among them, who backed William Kidd. If he wanted to keep his nose clean, he'd better pony up that cash in toto. But he had invested a decent amount of money in this pirate-hunting expedition. It was all with the best intentions, of course. Plus, he had invested another good amount of his own money in securing Captain Kidd in Boston. His colony, Massachusetts Bay, had invested an even larger amount. Isn't it only right that he and the good people of Boston be compensated? And it wasn't just Bellamont who thought this way. A bunch of people in Massachusetts had invested their time and money and energy In the imprisonment of Captain Kidd over the past several months, they expected to be compensated. To this end, Lord Bellamont wrote several letters to a few of the most important people in England, or at least who he thought were the most important people in England. The political landscape was changing so fast that he really wasn't up to date anymore. Those letters detailed his accounting and the treasure that he was sending back to England, which should be worth well over £20,000 sterling. Those letters also included parcels with a few valuable presents for their recipients. In one case, he sent a very rare and expensive beaver fur to the former Secretary of State Vernon, which would have been great if Vernon had still been Secretary of State, but now a Tory, one of his opponents, one of Lord Bellamont's opponents, sat in his seat. Bellamont was sending him what were clearly just bribes to keep his own grubby hands on some of that ill-gotten loot, and there are some extenuating circumstances that would mitigate some of that in a modern court of law. Bellamont was sending bribes to who he thought was the Secretary of State to keep his hands on some of that ill-gotten loot. The Tories in London could not have wished for better ammunition against the governor of Massachusetts. It's like Bellamont bought a slip and slide, then he coated it in coconut oil, put it right in front of a bus, and slid under that bus at full speed. Of the 30 or so pirates that were on board HMS Advice, only nine of them were Captain Kidd's men. These were James Kelly, Hugh Parrott, Richard Barleycorn, Kidd's cabin boy, Edward Davis, Joseph Palmer, Gabriel Loff, Samuel Aris, Robert Lamley, and William Jenkins. There were also several people on board that Captain Kidd had bought back in Madagascar. Most of these had been claimed by the government as spoils, part of Captain Kidd's loot, but two of them, Malagasy children, were left in Captain Kidd's custody. When Captain Kidd was thrown in that cabin on the advice, those two children were thrown in there with him, apparently to continue to serve him as his property. It wasn't a kindness, I don't think. I don't fully understand why those two children were left with Captain Kidd. But it's almost like his captors held the institution of slavery in such high regard that even a pirate was permitted to keep his property. If they had intended to do William Kidd a kindness, they probably would have allowed his wife to visit before he was shipped off. Sarah Kidd petitioned, and pleaded, and begged just to see her husband. But time and time again she was rebuffed. It was cruel on the part of the governor to make these refusals. I don't know what he thought Sarah Kidd could have done to free her husband, had she been allowed to see him. There was nothing short of a note informing Captain Kidd that every pirate in the New World was rushing to his rescue, that could save Captain Kidd from this predicament. To me, it seems that Lord Bellamont was just being vindictive when he forbade Sarah Kidd from seeing her husband. So imagine this scene. It's early March, 1700. The ground is still covered mostly in snow. People are beginning to move about, but they're still wrapped up in heavy coats. Shortly after sunrise a sloop arrives at the docks, bearing Captain Wynne of the advice, just as it had every morning for weeks now. Lord Bellamont's command that Captain Wynne attend him every day from dawn to dusk had not been rescinded. The good captain disembarked and began his march to stand before Lord Bellamont. And there you are moving slow in the early morning, getting ready for the business of the day, when a woman's voice breaks the still morning air. She's calling out for Captain Wynn as he crosses the square. Now, you know who these two people are. Captain Wynn is a Royal Navy captain tasked with transporting the most famous pirate in the world to England. And then there's Sarah Kidd. Everybody knew who Sarah Kidd was. Even back in London, the papers, mostly Tory papers, had done more than a few write-ups on the wife of Captain Kidd. To their credit, these papers didn't sling too much mud in her face. They usually didn't paint her as the pirate queen of the new world. Instead, she was a good honest Christian woman who had married a duplicitous two-faced sea captain. And that's good copy right there. I mean, that kind of story was not uncommon in the English Empire. Sea officers were everywhere at this point, and usually they were good prospects for respectable young women seeking husbands. Be an officer in the Royal Navy or the East India Company or even a private merchant fleet. That was a respectable, well paid, socially mobile caste. But then, some officers at sea were known to get up to less than honorable pursuits when they were away from home. Sometimes they might find they have a couple extra kids in Port Royal or New York or Bombay. Sometimes they would have an extra wife or two. This kind of thing wasn't super common, but it did happen. The figure of a respectable young woman, played false by a dashing man in a sea officer's coat, elicited a ton of sympathy. It was becoming something of a trope by 1700. And that's what people saw when they saw Sarah Kidd. On that morning in March, the people of Boston saw that figure when Sarah Kidd called out for Captain Wynne, a good, loyal woman who, despite her husband's descent into piracy, continued to advocate for him. It was commendable. So were you there in that square in Boston, you would be watching when Sarah Kidd crossed the square bundled up tight, to stand before Captain Wynne. Now, reportedly, these two had yet to actually meet, but, of course, Captain Wynne knew who Sarah Kidd was as well as anybody. Sarah had come to beg Captain Wynne, just days before the advice was to depart, to beg him to allow her just a moment with her husband. You know, there was no question of her going to London with him, Even Sarah and William agreed on this. Doing so might put Sarah and her children in as much peril as William now found himself. Daphne Giannacopoulos puts this next bit perfectly. She writes in The Pirate's Wife, Sarah wanted, needed, to get a message to her husband. She wished to say goodbye, and to send him her love, and to tell him what their love produced. She would be about seven months pregnant and showing, but the thick wool covering may have disguised her bump. End quote. I had to count down the months on my fingers just to be sure, but yeah, it had been about seven months since Captain Kidd reunited with his wife back in August, and she was pregnant. Everybody knew she was pregnant. It wasn't a secret. The only person who didn't know was the father. Now, if you're looking for a good, tragic figure, and what newspaper wasn't, you could do a lot worse than this beautiful 30-year-old woman, fraying around the edges a bit thanks to her long ordeal, who was seven months pregnant and yet standing here, resolute, begging just a moment's time with her husband. It was a figure that the newspapers would glory in painting. Captain Wynne, to this request, said no. He wasn't cruel about it. He even seemed a bit apologetic, but he could not allow it to happen. So Sarah reached out, took the captain's hand in her own, and placed a heavy gold ring in his palm. The captain looked down at it. And Sarah, still holding his hand in hers, begged him to at least take her husband a message, bearing her love and the news. To which the captain said, I can deliver no message. He tried at this point to hand the ring back to her. Sarah Kidd appeared to be holding in tears at this. It was a powerful scene there on the docks of Boston. Sarah, though, closed the captain's fingers over the ring. She stepped away from him and said, Be kind to my husband. Keep the ring as a token until we meet again when you bring my husband back to me. On the 10th of March, the advice set sail for London. Captain Kidd's voyage was not going to be pleasant or easy. We'll talk about it soon enough, but... Neither Captain Wynne nor William Kidd knew that they were engaged in a race. See, at this very moment, there was another Royal Navy ship bearing another pirate and headed for London. Captain Kidd's old nemesis, Robert Culliford, had been called to testify. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit-Down, a Mafia history podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you certainly can do so at brillig.com.au. That's b-r-i-l-l-i-g.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.